In John 6, we have a record of Christ feeding the 5,000. And the outward features of the story are quite simple. They were 5,000 men, besides women and children. We're probably talking of a crowd in excess of 10,000. They have nothing to eat. And Jesus takes what he has, five loaves and two small fish, and spontaneously creates more. Jesus performs a miracle as effortlessly as God creating a second human from a rib. Those are the basic features of the story. But did you know this miracle is one of the most frequently depicted scenes in the artwork of the early church, including the catacombs in Rome? This is, in fact, the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000 is, in fact, the only event previous to the triumphal entry that is recorded in all four Gospels. Surely there must be some great significance to this account. So let's begin reading with verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, if we were to compare all four gospel records of this event, we would notice three and perhaps four differences. First, we'd notice that only John names two disciples, Philip and Simon Peter. Second, we would notice John's unique mention of Passover in verse 4. Third, we notice that John, unlike the others, does not mention that Jesus broke the bread before distributing it. 
And fourthly, if we were to keep reading, we would notice that John uniquely includes a lengthy discourse on the true bread of life. Now, I don't suspect there's any particular significance to John's naming Philip and Peter. These references would certainly be helpful if I were preaching a biographical sermon on the lives of the apostles, but they don't seem to affect the interpretation of the miracle itself. What I'd like to do today is work through the passage, giving particular emphasis to the other three points. Now, in verses 1 through 3, John will locate the miracle. The traditional site, based on a comparison of the four Gospels, is the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee across from the city of Tiberias. The Sea of Galilee was often called the Sea of Tiberias, as our text indicates. Herod Antipas founded the city of Tiberias on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee around A.D. 20, and he named it in honor of the Roman emperor. That was on the west side. On the northern shore, at the top of the sea, stood Bethsaida, a very small fishing village. Luke's Gospel tells us Jesus was in the vicinity of Bethsaida. And John already told us in chapter 1 that both Philip and Peter were from Bethsaida. This may be part of the reason he named these two disciples in the account. Now, if you were to move clockwise from Bethsaida down along the eastern shore of Galilee, you would venture into an unpopulated region. And both Matthew and Mark relate that the feeding of the 5,000 occurred in a lonely place or a desolate place. So when you put that all together, Jesus seems to be out here in this lonely place, this desolate wilderness region near Bethsaida, all right, but down along the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now in verse 4, John uniquely tells us the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. John actually refers to three separate Passovers in his gospel. In fact, the reference that you just read is really, really crucial to working out a chronology of the life of Jesus. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find a single reference to Passover, the final Passover of Jesus down in Jerusalem. But because we have John's gospel, we we know that Jesus' ministry extended through some three Passovers. John does, in fact, refer to that final Passover. We'll get there eventually. But that is John's third reference to a Passover. The reference in verse 4 is to a second Passover in Jerusalem. And John's first reference to a Passover was way back in John chapter 2. That was the Passover when Jesus first cleansed the temple, the first of two cleansings of the temple, and when he predicted his resurrection three days after after the temple was destroyed. It was also the Passover where he met Nicodemus by night. All right, so we've got three Passovers, and this is the central Passover that we have a record of in our Gospels. Now, as crucial as these Passovers are to putting together a chronology of the ministry of Jesus, John's primary purpose here in our context is not actually chronological. It is, in fact, theological. It's a kind of theological pointer to get us ready for what's to come. Would you observe, actually, how verse 4 
initially appears to just disrupt the flow of the narrative. You could very easily read from verse 3 to verse 5 without verse 4, and nothing would be lost. There's a large crowd in Galilee. They follow Jesus into the wilderness. They see His miracles. Jesus saw the crowd. He sat down on the mountain. He asked Philip how to feed the crowd. All right? So what does any of that have to do with the impending Passover feast down in Jerusalem? Verse 4 just sort of dangles out there like one of those misplaced sentences that your English teacher flagged. Like, why did that go here? Right? Well... Why does John reference the Passover in his account of the feeding of the 5,000? That's the question we should be addressing. So let's explore this for just a moment. For the Jew, the Passover and the Exodus are nearly synonymous. Exodus was the moment when Yahweh moved heaven and earth descended in fury upon the Egyptian overlords and rescued them from slavery. This was the moment when he drew them into the wilderness to worship. This was the moment when he forged those people together into a nation. And at Sinai, God entered into a covenant with his people. God became their redeemer at Passover. So for the Jew, the Exodus moment marked the genesis of the Hebrew nation. It was the most important moment up to that date in all of Hebrew history. The Exodus moment was marked and permanently memorialized with the institution of a meal, the Passover. Now here's another crucial point to remember. The Exodus moment, the Jews believed, would happen Again, their king would come in their darkest hour and deliver in time of need. And that's why multitudes just kept converging on Jerusalem year after year after year to celebrate the Exodus and to anticipate the new Exodus through Passover. Now, Passover was the first Jewish feast of the year. It was celebrated on the 14th day of Nisan. And it was celebrated together with another feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this was a week-long affair that was so closely intertwined with Passover that by Jesus' time, the two feasts were viewed as one and the same. Unleavened bread, Passover, more or less is the same thing. In fact, in Matthew 26 and verse 17, we read these words. Listen very carefully. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? They're fused together. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread then reminded the Jews of the manna in the wilderness that sustained the infant nation through its first 40 years. Without the bread of heaven, the nation would have never survived in a desolate place. Now, I will have a great deal more to say about Passover as we work our way into John chapter 6. 
But for now, just note that John includes this seemingly arbitrary reference to Passover so that in our minds we begin to link Passover with the miraculous multiplication of the bread in the wilderness. Friends, who was it that led the people out of Israel, who forged them into a nation, and who supplied daily manna in a desolate place? And what was the true meaning of the manna? The bread. And did that bread in some way point beyond itself? As we discovered last week, in the same way that all the Old Testament pointed beyond itself, some future object or person on the horizon out there. Well, would you glance down momentarily to John's later explanation in verse 31. In verse 31, the Jews make an important claim about the manna in the wilderness. And Jesus responds, verse 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness... As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Remember, Jesus in John 5 has just claimed this relationship with the Father. It was God the Father. It was not Moses who miraculously provided the bread for the nation in the wilderness. And now Jesus spontaneously, miraculously provides bread for the people in the wilderness. And Jesus does so as the nation prepares for Passover. The nation will soon converge on Jerusalem. They will recall the exodus. They will celebrate the Feast of Manna, the unleavened bread, and they will anticipate a new deliverance. But what kind of deliverance are we talking about? That was the question the Jews did not comprehend. Did God choose merely to overthrow their Roman overlords? Imagine a king who came to cast off the Roman yoke. Imagine he succeeded. Israel would still have an insurmountable problem. They would all die. Every last one of them. What kind of Passover then? What kind of new exodus did Jesus come to offer? Well, look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. So much for deliverance, they all died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the manna and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my Flesh. Now we will come to these verses in due course, but at this point I simply draw your attention to them so that we get headed in the right direction. 
When you interpret the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and fish, understand there's a lot more going on here than first meets the eye. This is why all four Gospels include it. This is really significant. This miracle points us to Jesus as the deliverer of the new Passover. And Jesus will deliver us not merely from Egypt to eat manna in the wilderness. Jesus will come, Jesus has not come merely to multiply loaves in the wilderness. Jesus has come, we know this, to offer his own life as a sacrifice that grants an exodus from this creation into the new creation. That's where the whole miracle is pointing. So all that, I hope, explains verse 4. All right? That verse doesn't just dangle out there. Leave it in there, all right? It's a very important signpost telling you how to interpret the miracle that's to follow. Now let's come to verses 5 through 7 and the immediate problem that provoked the miracle in the first place. In verse 5, Jesus sees a large crowd and he turns to Philip for a solution. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6 relates this question was a test. Jesus knew perfectly well that he could multiply a few loaves and fish. Now Philip, again, was from Bethsaida. This was a nearby village. And if anyone had the local connections, to go out and scrounge up some food, it would have been Philip. But Philip knew the futility of such a venture. The town was too small and the crowd is too big. 200 denarii would be insufficient to purchase a morsel for each member of the crowd. A denarii was roughly a day's wage. 200 denarii was equivalent to about eight, eight months' wages. That's a lot of money, but even so, it wouldn't make a dent in the problem. There were simply too many people to feed. So, what to do? Now, Philip's response indicates that he is looking only for a marketplace solution rather than a supernatural solution. And our tendency at this point might to really jump on Philip and to say, what is your problem? But I I do want to caution us about that particular approach. I'm doubtful that we would have responded any differently. Yes, Philip knew that Jesus could perform miracles. But he had never actually seen Jesus feed 5,000, to the best of our knowledge. And further, Jesus did not offer initially to perform a miracle. Jesus specifically asked where to buy bread. What he asked. If Jesus asked you where to buy bread, wouldn't you assume that Jesus wanted to buy bread? You see? So when verse 6 tells us that Jesus was testing Philip, I don't take this to be a test to see whether Philip would suggest a miracle or not. And Jesus' question, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, really does not highlight Philip's lack of faith. Rather, it just focuses our attention on the futility of the situation. That's where the attention is. This situation is futile. I mean, what are we going to do? There were no available resources to feed the masses. And Jesus wants to know, okay, how, Philip, are we going to respond to this? Now, verse 8 further highlights the futility of the situation, in my estimation. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they 
for so many. Now, we may be tempted to read into this event more, I think, than is warranted by the text. In my estimation, it takes some imaginative leaps to turn the boy into the kind of exemplar of childlike faith who's just looking for Jesus to perform a miracle. I'm, I'm not sure that's what the text says, all right? In fact, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have no mention of the boy, only the five loaves and the fish. So there really doesn't seem to be a lot of attention on the boy. That really is curious when you consider that Matthew's gospel pays a whole lot of attention to Jesus' interaction with children. Peter's question at the end of the verse indicates that Peter, at least, was not bringing the boy to Christ in faith. Rather, Peter was simply reiterating the futility of the situation. We don't have much here, Lord. So whereas Philip acknowledged the insufficiency of funds... Peter acknowledges the insufficiency of resources. We've got nothing. Like the children in the wilderness with nothing to eat. So again, I think the whole story just points us to a desperate situation that reminds us instantly of what happened after the Exodus. Jesus, nevertheless, proceeds in a very orderly fashion to prepare the crowd for a meal. Have the people sit down. And let's go from here. Well, what's going to happen? In verse 11, Jesus took what he had. He gave thanks, and he began distributing the food to those who were seated. In other words, he distributed the 5,000 men and doubtless thousands more women and children from those loaves and fish. Now in verse 11, the words translated, had given thanks, come from the Greek term from which we get our word, Eucharist. Eucharist, that's actually a Greek term. Good Protestants tend to shy away from that term because it does just sort of sound very much like Catholicism, all right? But understand that term was actually a biblical term long before it became associated with the Roman Catholic Mass. In the early church, a term was actually widely used in conjunction with communion or the Lord's Supper. So the reference to the giving of thanks or the Eucharist is foreshadowing a later Passover where Jesus will spontaneously reorient a whole meal, the Eucharist, around himself. This is very symbolic. Now, whereas the Jews for 1,500 years had observed Passover, to remember the Exodus, Jesus is going to go to that Eucharist meal, meal, that giving of thanks, and all of a sudden he's going to totally change the meaning. This do in remembrance of me. That, again, is one little clue in the text as to why this miracle is so important. Now, I pointed out earlier that John, unlike the other evangelists, does not mention that Jesus broke the bread before he distributed it. And that, to me, is actually very curious. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read that Jesus took the loaves, that Jesus blessed the bread, that Jesus broke the bread, and that Jesus gave the bread. Took, blessed, broke, grave, gave, not grave, gave. 
or some variation on those four. For example, here's what Matthew says. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Listen also to Matthew's account of the feeding of the 4,000. And he took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. Jesus took, he blessed or gave thanks, the Eucharist, he broke and he gave. That formula is repeated over and over and over again in the synoptics with the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, but that's not it. Guess where else that is repeated? That is repeated when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Listen to what Matthew writes. Now they were eating, and Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. There is the formula again. Mark writes, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Luke writes, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. God took his creation, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it. That's what God does, that's what Christ does. And each meal that we eat sustains our life through another day. What if God wanted to sustain your life not just for another day, but forever? How will the Creator accomplish that? How will He find a way for you to feast with Him again in the kingdom? Answer, God will take His own body. He gives thanks. He offers it as a sacrifice. It must be broken, wounded on a cross, and He must give it to you. So friends, if you want to live another day, take the bread and the fish of God's creation, give thanks, break it, and eat. But if you want to live forever, well then, Jesus says to you, take, this is my body, which is broken for you. And if anyone doubts whether this sacrifice is sufficient for you, well, guess what? He can feed 5,000, or he can feed 10,000, and the abundance is so great that baskets full remain. It's all the symbolism that is here in this miracle. This truly is an extraordinary miracle that just points right beyond itself to the advent of the Creator in the body of a man. It's no wonder that early Christians just painted this in so many places and on their catacomb walls. So clearly, I think there's a connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and the Passover meal in which Jesus will transform that whole meal into a memorial for his own death. So all that then raises a question in my mind. Why does John depart from the standard formula? Take, bless, break, eat. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. John includes take, gave thanks, and eat, but nothing about breaking the bread. And why not? Answer? I have no idea. Sorry. Was I leading you to an answer? I don't have the answer. I don't know. I actually don't know. I'm really puzzled over this because it's so pronounced in the other Gospels. 
However, I will say this. This is, this is my best guess, all right? John, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, proceeds the remainder of the chapter, chapter 6, to relay Jesus' discourse on the bread of life. And in that discourse, it becomes crystal clear that something dramatic must happen to Jesus' body. That body must be broken open like a sacrifice. That body must become a living sacrifice on a cross. Just glance ahead to verse 54. Jesus says this, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Talk about the breaking of bread. How about the sacrifice of Jesus' own body? So friends, the question may not be so much why does John not include a reference to the breaking of bread, but why does the synoptic do include it? Since the synoptics don't give us Christ's discourse on the... By the way, the synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All right. So since the synoptics don't give us Christ's discourse on the bread of life, they may insert the word break all right, as a kind of substitute for the whole discourse that follows. Either way, we know that the body of Christ must be broken. Broken open on the cross. Clearly, the passage points itself to a greater sacrifice to come. Now, that brings us then to verses 12 through 13. John turns our attention to the abundant excess that Jesus produced. Look at verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments and from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Well, why twelve baskets? Well, it's hard to say. All four Gospels mention the twelve. Some have seen in this a reference to the twelve tribes of Israel. I don't know that I see that. And perhaps it means nothing more than the fact that there were twelve apostles or twelve disciples and they went out and each had a basket. Maybe nothing to it at all. I don't know. But either way... The passage does speak to the abundance. The abundance that Jesus was able to produce. Jesus, friends, just lavished bread and fish on the crowds because He truly cared for them. I think we could draw many important applications from the generous quantity of the fragments that were left over. Could we not? Could we get some testimonies, perhaps, about God's abundant blessings? I suspect we may hear some of those tonight. I'm looking forward to that time together. I'm sure each and every one of us could be very, very quick to really enumerate God's abundance in ways that He just overfilled our baskets, blessed us in so many ways. And because I suspect that we are so good at that application already, I want to go in an entirely different direction. There is an application here that actually I think is quite easy to miss. 
Look at the very curious end of verse 12. Jesus was concerned in verse 12 that nothing may be lost. Have you ever really applied that statement? We like applications of abundant blessings, but what is he after here? Nothing may be lost. Several years ago, I was reading a book about a seminary professor who came to a seminary class in America, and he had them read the story of the prodigal son, close their Bibles, and repeat the story. He did the same thing in a European context after the lifting of the Iron Curtain. Went to a seminary class, had all the students read the story of the prodigal son, close their Bibles, relate the story. Not a single American student referenced the famine in the land. And nearly every student in a European context, after the lifting of the Iron Curtain, Eastern European, mentioned the famine. Isn't it true that we tend to see things in the text based on our culture, who we are, where we are? We tend, I think, to focus on the blessings and the abundance But I draw your attention to these words that nothing may be lost. These really struck me when I was working through this passage. Like, why is Jesus saying this? Surely this has significance. We know that Jesus can supply over and above what we need. And Jesus clearly created more food than anybody could possibly eat. And certainly, Jesus could do it over and over again. So why does Jesus just insist that they don't let go of the leftovers? Get them all. Get them all, all right? Don't lose any of it. That's a fair question, isn't it? Well, look down at verse 26 for a moment. And notice what happens the day after Jesus performed the miracle. The people came looking for Jesus after he had ventured across the lake. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus highlights a massive problem in the Jews' thinking. They were ungrateful consumers. They wanted their bellies full of good food, but they couldn't be bothered to ask the question of who is it that lies behind the miracle? Who is the source of the food? Who is the source of the manna? And this was precisely the problem that the Israelites had in the wilderness. When Moses disappeared up on the Mount Sinai, the people assumed that God, I'm sorry, that Moses was dead. Remember this? And that God had forsaken them. Moses is gone. We're forsaken by God. And so they make a golden calf and begin to worship an idolatry. But have you ever realized what they were eating the very morning that they set about constructing that golden calf? What were they eating? Miraculous manna. Had God really forsaken them? No, the evidence is all over the desert floor. All that abundant manna. Oh, God has forsaken us. The problem is the manna had become so commonplace. People forgot this is really, truly God's blessing. I'm afraid when blessings become so commonplace, we forget God as the source of all those blessings. In fact, abundance can produce greater discontent than lack of resources. You know that, I know that. 
we actually can reach a point where we have too much to be content. Now, we Americans, and I realize many of you are not from America, all right, but let me, let, me, let me speak to the Americans and, and, and probably to all of us. We, we, we enjoy a very high level of life. I know the economy's down and the stock market's down. We enjoy a very high level of life, friends, more than any, any other people since the dawn of civilization. It's true. And on top of it all, you think about it, we have insurance policies that protect our homes, our cars, our boats, and even floater policies on your engagement rings. The home organization industry is estimated to grow at 10% every year. Home organization, we have so much stuff, we need help just organizing it all. You ever go in these older homes and wonder why they built those closets so small? They didn't build them too small. Our wardrobes got bigger. According to Forbes, the average American woman owns 30 outfits. In 1930, the average was nine. The average American home has tripled in size during the last 50 years, and still one in ten Americans rent off-site storage. Your house is three times bigger, and you need off-site storage. In the United States today, there are 50,000 storage facilities, five times the number of Starbucks. The British researcher group discovered that the average 10-year-old owns 238 toys and plays with only 12 daily. 3.1% of the world's children live in America and own 40% of the world's toys. Americans spend more on shoes, jewelry, and watches than on higher education, according to Psychology Today. When our economy slows down, we're told to run out and stimulate the economy by buying more stuff, right? And that's every administration, right? Just go buy more stuff and we're going to help each other out, right? More stuff. That'll satisfy us all, right? And then there are the statistics about how much we eat. Since the 1970s, the average portion size at a fast food restaurant has increased by an estimated 138%. And still, we are assaulted with commercials for endless buffets, all-you-can-eat pancakes at IHOP, all-you-can-eat wings at Golden Corral, endless shrimp at Red Lobster, loaded greasy hamburgers at a local hamburger joint. I mean, it's just like, how much do you want? It's all there. Several estimates suggest that Americans throw away upwards of 40% of their food. Americans, it's estimated, waste up to $162 billion on food every year. That means if we spent an average of $2.79 on a meal, we could serve 58 billion meals to the world with the money that we waste. That's astonishing. We are the first people in history to spend lavish amounts of money on food and then hire personal trainers to help us work it all off. It's, It's really weird, isn't it? All right, I'm not trying to condemn anybody in the room. You understand that, all right? <laughs> but the fact is, friends, we, we are history's great consumers. And doubtless, we are the most wasteful civilization in world history. And I think that we, we have reached the point where the good things no longer give. Just look at our world. Look at our country. The good things no longer give. And why is this? It's because we refuse to look beyond the abundance to the source of the abundance. I am pretty certain that if Jesus performed this miracle in an American context, those 12 baskets full would end up in a dumpster behind the restaurant. Right? The bread would rot in our landfills. Again, I don't think I really need to apply the passage with illustrations of abundance. I just really want us to look at those words in verse 12. 
that nothing be lost. Now, don't assume, friends, that I become some sort of new-agey, tree-hugging, earth muffin. That's what they call them in Colorado. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I knew a guy who wanted to live in a teepee, you know, use every last scrap of the buffalo on the kill and the hunt. That, you know, none of that, all right? I'm not a disciple of Al Gore or environmentalism, anything like that, okay? Don't think the pastor's gone wacky, all right? But, but, but friends, before we overreact to the ideologies of our society, can we ask a very simple question? Whose worldview gives us justification for caring about creation? Whose worldview gives us a creator who cares for his creation? Whose worldview gives us that? Whose worldview teaches us to value the bread and the meat of creation given to us by a good God? Whose worldview says, bow your head and thank God for the sacrifice of your food on your table, the sacrifice that sustains your life for a day, and the sacrifice of the Creator that sustains your life for eternity? My dad used to say to us five kids, much to our annoyance, when we didn't finish our food, that cow gave his life for you. Oh, Dad, don't say that. Colin used to come to the dinner table, and he would ask, Mom, what animal are we eating tonight? Well, it's a fair question. We are consumers of God's creation. We are eating God's animals. And since the fall, God just keeps on sacrificing His creation in order to keep us alive. But the Christian worldview claims that God created a good world that He highly values and that God Himself intends and does enter His creation in order to redeem His creation. And that God is in fact laboring to restore all things that ultimately this comes about through the sacrifice not of His creation, but the sacrifice of the Creator. So it's creation, it's, it's Christians that ought to really have a good theology of creation care. A component of our vocational theology should be how do we care for and stewards, steward the good things that God has given to us. And we could do so without getting into all the nonsense of Al Gore and the environmentalists, okay? That's not where I'm going. I'm simply saying that as Christians, we have a reason to care for what God has made. Because we believe the earth and its fullness, right, belongs to God. Think of it this way. If God notices a single little sparrow that topples from its perch and plummets to the ground. Do you think he notices when you throw your half-eaten chicken sandwich into the trash can? Of course he does! That's God's bird! Okay. I'm about done. All right. But friends, from time to time we talk about food. There's a good theology of food that you need from the Bible. Food is not just fuel for your body. It's not just protein for your muscles, right? It is God's creation, and these are God's creatures. Let nothing, let nothing be wasted. We, we just really need a good theology of what we're doing every day when we consume God's creation and to respond with gratitude in our hearts for all that God has done for us, all right? Now, again, you can come up with lots of illustrations about God's bounty, 
But here's the illustration for you today, all right? Let, let nothing be lost. Respect and care for everything that God has given to you. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for Christ, our creator. Thank you for his care for creation. Thank you for his care for people who were hungry on the hillside. We thank you, Lord, for his ability to provide abundantly. And I pray, Lord, in all of our excess and all of our bounty, that we would really just give thanks. Can I encourage you here for just a moment? Take, take, take just a minute here. And thank God. Thank God for five things that you haven't thanked Him for in a long time. Can you do that? Thank God for five things you haven't thanked Him for in a very long time. Something simple. Okay. Lord, fill our hearts with gratitude, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.